You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. To Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he is in the mood for a clans on the half shell and roller skates. But then again, he always is. It's Mr. <laughs> Jeff McLeod-Juge. Oh, you figured it out. That's that's exactly the keys to get to the, you know, you want me to do things, that's what you offer me. Sounds like good times. Yes. <laughs> uh, to me, Jeff. Yep, yep. <laughs> What's up? How you doing? Oh, man, I'm all right. I had the weirdest experience today, Bill, and it was in preparing for today's program, which is why I thought I should bring it up. Go on. As I was looking through my notes and looking through our source material for some of where we get our content for the show. Yep. I ran across something, which is a factoid that wouldn't mean anything to anybody, really. And it was like, nice, not, yeah, February <laughs> 3rd, 1923, a woman named Catherine Mansfield publishes the first part of a story called Garden Party. And I went, ah, Garden Party. That's an interesting name. I wonder if that had any influence on the Marillion song from Script for a Jester's Tear. Right. Their first album. My favorite band, their first album. Keep going. Keep keep talking. Your your favorite band and their first (laughs) album. And my favorite song on that first album is Garden Party. Uh, In the course of doing this, I spool up Garden Party. I start listening to it. I'm grooving out, having a great time. And I see that I can find that this whole story, short story by Catherine Mansfield, is online. And I st- oh, public domain stuff. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. I, st- I start to read it online, and about a paragraph and a half, maybe two paragraphs in, maybe two pages into this story. It's not a very long story. Okay. I I realize I read this story in college, and not only did I read it in college, I remembered character names, events, the order of events, how the story ended, all of the themes. Everything that was related to the importance of this story as a short story and a piece of modernist literature, I wrote a paper about this story as a, <laughs> as part of my assignment in college 28 years ago. I remember the grade I got on it, B+, and the conversation that I had with the two instructors who taught the class that I sat in where this story was part of the curriculum. I remembered all of that. I had this like 10-minute weird-ass flashback to 28 yep. years ago and lived it all again in extreme detail. I've only ever had that sort of thing happen to me once before, again, with a piece of written literature. But this was so out of left field that I couldn't have predicted that I would run into this story or that I had ever read this story before in my entire life until I was a page in. And all of a sudden, everything that I remembered about the story was there, like right down to lines of dialogue. It was so strange. But it's funny that you didn't remember that you read it until you started reading it again. Yeah. And not only did huh. I did I remember it, but like I almost it was like I had memorized it. It was insane. And, and what's funny is, like you said, it's one of your favorite songs from Marillion. You would think that 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 song would make that story stick out in your head. Except it doesn't, because they're not at all related <laughs> in any way. 
And that was right, what right, that right. was what I realized after I had had this moment of like weird non LSD unless it's like literature stuff day non LSD induced yep. flashback. <laughs> Very strange. So that kind of not exactly like that. That happened to me uh, one time. Right. We were doing uh, the virtual movie nights there, mm-hmm. and somebody had brought up a movie called Postal. And a lot of it seemed familiar to me. Yeah. But, you know, it could be anything. Right. I literally got 45 minutes into the movie. So, you know, almost at a halfway point before I said to myself, wait, I've seen this movie before. And (laughs) not only had I seen the movie before, but I had seen the movie before less than three years prior. Wow. Like you at least have almost 30 years in the bank. You know, me was like three you know, <laughs> must be something about the way that like your brain remembers imagery versus text. Uh-huh. You know, I, because it was like I, I was remembering it as like literally as lines of text. It wasn't imagery from the story or anything. It was li- like, I know what line of text is coming next. I could see it like it was being typed out. It was so weird. And with films, it's so like visually oriented that right. that it's it's like a different part. Of, I think it's like a different part of your brain, maybe that memorizes those things, too. Another thing is it sounds to me like Garden Party, the story, was good. Seems like something you enjoyed. It turns out, yeah. I remember the, the paper I wrote was a lot more critical of it than I am now as an adult than yeah. I was when I was like 22 or 23 years old because I was much more smug in college yeah. than I am now. And I really, young I, man. I really enjoyed it. And I guess it, it's one of those things that percolated with me. But again, you could have put a gun to my head at 10 this morning and said, Garden Party. And I would have said, brilliant. You would have said, no, a story. Right. And I would have said, I have no idea what you're talking about. The movie Postal, I have a, a completely different uh, story. It's okay. It's what I would refer to as a popcorn cruncher. Yeah. But, you know, it's uh, – it's, it's Uwe Ball special. That's a German, that? German director. Uwe Ball directed that movie. Yes. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, you must have watched that one I, with us on the virtual movie. Night. I yeah. have seen Postal, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's – it's not going to make anybody's top 10 list unless it's making the top 10 Uwe Bald movies. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely my top five Uwe Bald movies that I've seen. All right. Uh, this is going to be the week beginning January the 30th. But, Jeff, before we get the show proper started, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Uh, so Bring it on. I, my brain is I, all pumped up today. I think you might get this one. I th- I'm, if I was betting, is if it I was about a Garden man, Party? Because I know the date that it was first published. No, damn. All right, being Generation X, you used to have an Atari video game system. Yes. Do you know what the word Atari means? Well, I guess we'll find out at the end of the show. Uh, uh, I'm I'm hoping you do, but we'll see. All right, but this is the week beginning January the thirtieth, and we will let you start this week. Excellent. January 30th, uh, 1798. So way back there, Bill. The first brawl takes place on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. Between Matthew Lyon of Vermont, generally a pretty chill state, I guess maybe not in 1798. Right. And Roger Griswold of Connecticut, never a chill state. Started (laughs) with uh, Matthew Lyon spitting tobacco juice into Griswold's face. Griswold did not accept the apology. That's apolog- gross. <laughs> yeah, it, it is gross. Griswold, who later um, did not accept the written apology, I'm sure it was very snarky that Lion handed him, 
took his cane and whacked them pretty good. And they ended up beating <laughs> each other up on the floor of this of the House of Representatives until Lyons was braining Griswold with the tongs from the fireplace. And he was whacking on Lyon with his cane. And it took the other representatives to separate the two of them. This sounds like there was something that would happen in like either Three Stooges or a Marx Brothers movie or something like that. <laughs> yep. Like this is on the floor of the Capitol? Yeah, yeah, floor of the House of Representatives. Well, I mean, technically the House of Representatives is like where that stuff in government is sort of designed to happen because that's the yeah. rabble. <laughs> that's where everybody can be a rep and it's not like sort of House of Lords style that the Senate is meant to sort of tamp down the enthusiasm of the House of Representatives. Uh-huh. But it's still, you know, if you want to represent Connecticut or Vermont, you probably don't want to be taking the fireplace tongs to somebody's cranium to <laughs> get your point across. I spit tobacco in your face, my good sir. This is in the age of, like, duels. So I'm yeah. surprised it didn't turn into pistols at, you know, 10 paces or something and <laughs> somebody blowing somebody else's face off. But Yeah, recent events in the past, we'll say, two years, mm-hmm. um, a little more than two years, you know, everybody seems to have this illusion that everything is so civilized and all that. But man, back in those days, I, I mean, I, there's always going to be politicians and disagreement. That's why they call it politics right? Uh, and all that. But <laughs> just these guys fighting with a fireplace tong and the cane, like some sort of like really bad Star Wars remake. Yeah, I can, I can actually hear the music in the background while, they're, while I envision them doing it. It's pretty funny to think that. <laughs> You know, politics hasn't come all that far. Every now and then you'll see, like, in another country, more so than here, yeah. you know, a news clip of, like, two representatives from some party just beating the bejesus out of each other until everybody <laughs> jumps in, like the bench-clearing brawl at a, you know, minor league baseball game. <laughs> on 10-cent draft night. Right. Yeah, exactly. A 10-cent beer night. <laughs> all right. So, moving on to the 31st. Ooh, This aged like milk. (laughs) January the 31st of 1990, the first McDonald's opens up in the former Soviet Union, Russia. Well, it actually opened up in the Soviet Union, right? Oh, no, I guess it wasn't. It was 1990. Yeah. So so that was after the Soviet Union had collapsed? Dissolved. I think it was still... I think it was still in the process of dissolving. You and I are both doing right now, because our brains are so big and filled with facts... Is we're conflating the fall of the Berlin Wall with the fall of the Soviet Union. Because Berlin Wall was 89. It was during the dissolving of the Soviet Union. It's not like like the Soviet Union just like stopped one day. It it was a slow process over like three years. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's kind of started with the Berlin Wall coming down. But then it evolved to the, uh, the eventual dissolving of the Soviet Union over the next three years. So Soviet Union fell apart in between 89 and 92. So right about the time that really popular song by the Scorpions, Winds of Change, was being broadcast yes. all over the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh-huh. I believe we did that as worst song ever, didn't we? I don't think we've done that one yet. And there's a really funny story about how the CIA wrote that song. <laughs> 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 to bring down the Soviet Union. But yes, we should get back to uh, bringing uh, the Amerikanskis fast food to downtown Moscow. And how people lined up for hours to get a, a mech of epic proportions. Yeah. And then they're, like, they're probably like lining up, just like the Americans lined up with like the Cronuts a couple of years ago. Right. 
And then, but you know, they get their Big Mac and they're like, this tastes like nothing. This tastes like plastic box that it comes in. <laughs> Why? Why is there two patties on single hamburger? I do not understand. Are they short by one bun? Hmm? Perhaps we would make two burgers. I would rather eat the blue jeans than the hamburgers. This is disgusting. These so-called French fries are neither French nor fried. (laughs) (laughs) Disgust. Oh. Um... (laughs) The Big Mac secret sauce is basically Russian dressing. Well, actually, I think it's a Thousand Island dressing, thousand which Island. is Russian dressing with lettuce in it. So It's weird. I don't know what they call that in Indonesia. In Russia, we call it Russian dressing. It's simply dressing. Yes. Yes. Uh, actually, fun facts: Russian dressing was invented in New York. Ah, that makes sense. Well, at any rate, McDonald's has been pretty popular and more and more American and European foodstuffs find their way into the Soviet Union as it started to collapse. And that was one of the one of the cultural things that started to open the country up to show that we weren't just, you know, staring down the barrel of ICBMs at one another. Is that we yeah, also those are the days. <laughs> right? Is that we also <laughs> like things like the Scorpions and we like things like French fries, and we like things like the Beatles, and there was room in the world for us as people to sort of exist together, even if it was over something as less than healthy as a happy meal. Or as they called it in Soviet Union, this is a meal. Yeah, chicken McNuggets, bringing the world together like only only processed food could, yeah. All right, let's move on to the first February 1st, 1929, the first official clean and jerk of four, over 400 pounds is done by a guy named, guy named Charles Rigulet, who clean and jerks 402 and a half pounds. Now, I don't wow. want to brag, Bill. Generally, yep. I do that in reverse order. <laughs> and I, oh. you know, I'm not bragging about size or anything, but <laughs> I, I'd give Mr. Rigulet a run for his money. Ladies. <laughs> So the clean and jerk, is, <laughs> the clean and jerk is a weightlifting maneuver yeah. of uh, pressing heavy weights over your head, starting from the ground and then lifting it. Uh, right, first up know, above, above to your head. above your nipples, and then above your head after that. Yeah, right. That's uh, I believe that's a three stage, right? I think it's that's two. It's from the ground up to your chest, and then from your chest up to the sky. I'm calling that three because ground chest. Scott. Oh, okay. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. Ground chest sky. Then it is three stage. Yeah. I don't think of the. Yeah. I don't think of the starting point as a stage. But yeah, when you're going back down, it is. Yes. Yeah. And then there's a, there's a five stage one. I forget what that one's called. Oh, it's a ground. Yeah, the five stage one is the one that you see where they're they they start they you know they lift up and then they end up in a squatting position. Oh, you know, okay. They're down on the ground. Yeah, yeah. That's the one with that weightlifter guy was like, he like blew his anus out. It's like yeah. all right, and we're done here. Oh, the guy, yeah, the guy who had his testicles, like, shoot out of his eye sockets because he gets such a giant hernia. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Um, Do you ever see people at the gym doing, like, clean and jerk? Yeah. Like, weightlifting? Every every time I watch people do, yeah, there's a, most most people tend to do Romanian deadlift. That seems to be the favorite weight-dropping, giganto, 10 tons of weight uh, exercise that all the Sasquatches and giant monsters do at the gym I go to. Right. Um, I do notice whenever I see people doing clean and jerk, if they do it, generally they do it with a lot lighter weight, which is smart. Right. And they're focusing on form, which is also smart. And then I watch to see if, like me, who is doing clean and jerks, that they're going to die. Because that's what I was doing when I went. I went to visit the afterlife. (laughs) 
I don't understand why people are doing that kind of exercise in a gym. That particular one, the clean and jerk, is it's a competition not, exercise. It's not a yeah, it's not a exact, strength exercise. Exactly. And if you're going into competitions, I don't know, maybe workout world or whatever chain, you know, Planet Fitness is not the place you should be doing clean and jerk lifting. Well, yeah, fortunately, I don't. Well, I'm not going to say fortunately because I, I never had anything but a good experience at Planet Fitness. So don't take yeah. this as a, as a, some negative thing about them as a gym. I, I go to a different gym that is more traditional. Yeah. And has a greater amount of weights and or weight machines to work on than Planet Fitness does. There are some competitive weightlifters there. You can spot them because they're the ones who are eating handfuls of grain and horse tranquilizers at the same time um, <laughs> and drinking seven gallons of water in a sitting. And you do sometimes see them doing the clean and jerk, but not often. Like I said, the Romanian deadlift seems to be the one that people want to do. As a culture here in the United States, we're also really weird in that we tend to lift weights not to get ready for something, but just so that we're good at lifting weights, which no no yeah. one else in the world really does. Like people, right. people exercise to get to get good at playing soccer or playing, you know, I don't know, karate or something. And here we just yeah. do it to be good at lifting weights. Yeah, I used to see this one guy that would like walk on the treadmill backwards. Okay, that's going to build up muscles in your legs that will come in handy for – Walking backwards. What do you do for a living, sir? <laughs> well, maybe he's the guy who like guides planes at the airport, which he spends all day <laughs> walking backwards, waving waving those two sticks. All right. Uh, moving on to February the 2nd. Jeff, February the 2nd of the year 2020 is Palindrome Day. Ooh. The date was 02-02-2020, which means the same forward and backwards, including in the United States. Uh, Europe and China. Huh. Wow. Yep. So that's the day that I drove my race car under the radar. That was the day that God lived as a devil dog. Palindrome day. I like palindrome yeah. day. I wonder how Punxsutawney Phil felt on palindrome day. <laughs> I uh, I think palindromes are, are pretty like clever. Uh, so just to throw it out there. A palindrome is a sentence or a series of words, or in this case, a series of numbers that read the same forward as they do backwards. Yes. And if you ask me, whoever came up with the word palindrome should have tried a little harder. <laughs> well, I mean, they could have shrunk it down, but that would have been a portmanteau. Yeah, that's another thing. The word <laughs> abbreviation is a little too long. <laughs> The word vernacular isn't used as often as, uh, as it should be. It's not like, you know, you're going to play Scrabble and win with anti-disestablishmentarianism. So, uh, actually, if, one more thing about palindromes. There is a song, oddly enough, called Bob by Weird Al Yankovic that all the lyrics are palindromes. Really? I bet Race Car shows I, up in that song. I'm pretty sure it does. I think you could probably stack the song. Maybe he should have. Stack the song in such a way that the lyrics would all read the same forward as backwards. Hey, mm, there you no. go. Yeah, yeah. Mm, mm, mm. And and back with and back again. Yeah. All right. Let's go on to the third. Fe February third. While this sentence I'm about to read to you, Bill, is not a palindrome, it might as well be. Okay. Uh, all right. Now I'm going to read this to you in parts because I've read this a couple of times now, and I don't know what yep. it means. Maybe you can help me. So. I'm going to start this journey in 2021. You ready? Yep. Engineers at MIT. Still with me? Yes, I am. 
announced they have engineered spinach. Okay, I think you lost me. <laughs> to send emails. Nope. When detecting explosive materials Jeff, from groundwater. Jeff, do you do you smell burnt toast right now? Can you lift <laughs> both your hands up? I, I did look around to see if I was if my carbon monoxide detector was beeping yeah, when I read look, that sentence the first couple of times. Just I'm going to read it all out as uh, Real quick, just look in the mirror and smile for me. What do you see? Yeah, you, you good? Uh, look at that. Both sides are the same. It's asymm- right. it's symmetrical. Uh, I'm going to read it again in as an actual sentence without breaking it down into its weird ass component parts. Yep. And then it sort of starts to make more sense. But I have to ask, like, this is one of those things where just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should. Also, what, exactly what is the application for this? Yeah. Here is the sentence again. February 3rd, 2021, engineers at MIT announced they have engineered spinach to send emails when detecting explosive materials in groundwater. All right. So make this make sense, Jeff, because that's... <laughs> Dude, I can't. I, I cannot make that make sense at all. I My brain is filling in all kinds of things. Like, well, what kind of email would it send? Now, uh, my the first thing that I'm thinking is when they engineered spinach... I have a little mini computer called the Raspberry Pi. Yeah. That I use to emulate old video games. It's not a real Raspberry Pi. It is not delicious and savory. It's a little computer. Right. So is yes. this spinach? Spinach? It's spelled like spinach. It, I guess it's like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Godzilla versus Biolanti, but <laughs> maybe it's genetically modified spinach that has access to tentacles that can operate a computer. Dear Jeff, I have detected explosive materials in the groundwater. Please rescue me and put me in a salad or something. I don't know All right, so what, what it I, even means. So I just went to Google and I typed in spinach sends emails. And then mm-hmm. this comes up. Scientists have created spinach that can send emails. See? And it's going to picture of spinach. Yes. I'm paying too much for my internet. That's all I can think of right now. <laughs> It's this and porn. This is the reason I come yep. to the internet for emailing <laughs> spinach and naked ladies. Yeah. All right. Uh, before I have a stroke in, in more ways than one. Yay. Right. It's the masturbation joke episode. Um, it is definitely. Yep. Uh, moving on to the 4th, February the 4th, 1977, Wings releases their single, Maybe I'm Amazed, which is undoubtedly the best thing that Paul McCartney has done post-Beatles. You like that song more than you like Ebony and Ivory, Bill? I like that song more than I like Take It Away. You like that song more than you like The Girl Is Mine, Bill? I like that song more than I like Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas Time. You like that song better than you like Jet. I like that. I like that. I like that song better than the Chorus of Frogs song that we did one time. And I'm (laughs) yes. How do we get? I'm kind of running uh, out of of, the thing about Paul McCartney and the Beatles. Let alone the fact that this man was obviously switched out for Billy Shears in 1966. But like the Beatles were like the great, you know, greater than the sum of its parts. Yes. And there's there's very 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 little that comes out of the Beatles outside of the Beatles that mm-hmm. I think is worthy of who they are. You know. But right. This song, maybe I'm amazed, is just fantastic. I mean, ten out of ten, five star song. 
actually no argument for me here. Maybe I'm amazed is it ha- shares a lot in common with Hey Jude and tone and tempo mm-hmm. and meter for the lyrics. It's also beautifully written. It's a knot. He sticks like seven different song ideas together at different tempos. Like, like side two of Abbey Road. Uh, Uncle Albert, Albert Halsey, which is a song I like. But this one is just a sort of straight on Paul McCartney and a piano song. It shows... I don't know if it shows that when he's like super focused on something, he can pull something really glorious and gorgeous together. Because mm-hmm. this song is both of those things. I generally go, oh, Paul McCartney, bloop, and change the and change the station when I'm listening to like classic radio. Right. Because I find his solo music generally boring. However, if maybe I'm amazed is on, I always listen to that one through to the end, even if I catch it halfway through as I'm going through the stations. Yeah, I, think I really, that- really like this song. Uh, I, I don't think I'm going out on too far of a limb whenever I say uh, in the Beatles, John and Paul needed each other to reel each other in. Yeah. They both kept one another in check. And you only have to look at their respective solo careers to find out what happens when they don't have each other to reel each other in. Yes. Ringo Starr puts out a bunch of better solo records than they do. <laughs> Oddly enough, yeah. I'm not even picking on Ringo. I think Ringo's fantastic. I love Ringo Starr. Mm-hmm. I, everything he does is glorious. So. Yeah. Even when he's talking about seducing a 16-year-old girl. Uh, yes. Cover song, Bill. Cover yeah. song. Okay. It's not like Christine 16. Not cover song. Not cover song. <laughs> All right. Let's wrap up the week. February 5th, 1901. Bill, this is a nice easy one. Lobbing it right over the plate for you. Okay. 1901. The okay. first loop-to-loop centrifugal roller coaster is patented by Ed Prescott. Huh. 1901. I had no idea that this technology went back quite that far. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't cars. think so either. I would 1901 roller coasters were still one, you know, pretty slow. Uh mm-hmm. and you need a lot of speed to go through a loop like that. Right. And two, they were all wooden tracks, you know? Yeah. Prescott must have like drawn this out on a piece of paper and one of his colleagues would be like, "Are you nuts?" <laughs> I, I wonder how he got people on it. I mean, there's always <laughs> going to be the couple of daredevils who are like, all right, put me on that thing. Right. And, and if I die, give my remains to my mother. Right. Mm-hmm. But like how many other people are like that? I've been to like the feast or yep. other big fairgrounds where the rides are of dubious quality and are <laughs> upkeep. And even there, people are like, ah, you know what? Don't get on that. Right. You know, and no, you know what, kids? Let's go get some cotton candy. I don't know. Don't touch that. That look, there's bolts falling off the thing. Oh, I mean, I will go on any roller coaster you can throw me on. I'm not. I love love roller coasters, but you're right. not going to get me on the zipper, no. Right. <laughs> or a, a wooden coaster that goes in a loop, like, hmm. Yeah. And, and this is 1901, so it's still like this is, I think, before Queen Elizabeth died. So the style of dress was like big, sort of oh heavy sure blouse, heavy heavy clothes, and like big dresses and. Things that could catch air and be like parachutes that are going to slow the cars down. Right. Do you remember when I when we I first turned you on to a podcast called The Comedy Button? I had you yes. listen to this one segment. They were talking about Action Park. Hey, Action, yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah, Action Park was a water park for the most part over in yes. New Jersey that had very little rules and or regulations. And yes. one of the things they had over there was a loop-de-loop water slide. Now, that doesn't work on the same physics as a loop roller coaster would because water has a tendency to find its own level. Right. And it's impossible to keep that loop 
like lubricated to the point where people were like going through and just like getting stuck and folded in half and stuff. They'd have to like cut holes in the water slide to get them out of there. Nobody went through that thing without a broken arm, leg, nose, or whatever. So funny story about that particular ride yep. is uh, the first couple of people that they put through broke their teeth. They went around the top of the the loop. Yep. They gravity pulled them back down to the inside part of the loop. And they yep. smashed their face on the plastic and busted their front teeth. Ugh. So they, they put a mat there. They glued <laughs> a mat in place. And what happened after that was that people were coming through and coming out with cuts. Right? Yep. And they were coming out with cuts because other people had gone through and bashed their face in the mat. And still broken their teeth, but their teeth were stuck in the mat. Oh, Jesus. And the sharp enamel was poking up and it was the teeth that were scraping skin off of the other people that were like, <laughs> it wasn't that the loop-to-loop uh, water slide was not designed by an engineer. It was designed on a bar napkin by the guy that owned the park. And right. he basically said, here, go build this. He was like giving the employees $100 to try it out. <laughs> yeah. After they watched him put down dummies that came out broken. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that's a funny story. I don't know that Ed Prescott built a centrifugal roller coaster in 1901, but he definitely got the patent for it. Right. So maybe the patent clerk who basically looked at the plans and read through the patent application and then side-eyed good old uh, Ed Prescott and said, you haven't built one of these yet, have you? And he goes, no, that'd be crazy. Right. Patented. Boof. Right. And he stamps it and hands the paperwork over. That's like yeah. Michelangelo designed the parachute like hundreds of years before the airplane was invented. I remember my uh, going to Six Flags and trying to get my friend Amanda to go on a, uh, a looping roller coaster. And she was young and she was not having it. Mm-hmm. And she came up with the best description as to why she's not going to go on it. She goes, yeah. no. Because first you go upside down. Then you go, oh, shit. And then... <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to celebrity birthdays. February the 30th, 1930, American actor Gene Hackman. Oh, yeah. Probably best known for his role in 2001's Heartbreakers, starring Jennifer Love Hewitt and Sigourney Weaver. Or his role in Uncommon Valor, starring oh. Randall Tex Cobb and oh, the teenage Patrick Swayze. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think if people are going to know our good friend uh, Gene Hackman over here, they're probably going to know him as the best on-screen Lex Luthor from the Superman movies. Mm-hmm. He was in one, two, and three, and four. And four, and four yeah. No, oh, he wasn't in three. He was in one, two, and four. Okay. Also, he was the senator in The Birdcage with Robin Williams and... Nathan Lane. Uh, Nathan Lane, yeah. I liked him in Bonnie and Clyde when he played uh, Bonnie Parker's brother. Yeah. And I liked him a lot in Mississippi Burning, opposite Willem Dafoe. He was fantastic in that film. He's got a, a, a pedigree, a very large IMDb, and all like amazing, like move. Well, not all amazing, but a lot of very amazing uh, movies. Wyatt Earp, The Quick and the Dead, Unforgiven, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right, moving on. January 31st, 1923, American author Norman Mailer. I will not one sing. The, I will not sing the Guar song. One of the writers who became famous after his time during World War II, writing about his experiences in novelized form in the years that followed. He wrote a book called The Naked and the Dead. So he sort of joins Joseph Heller, who wrote Catch-22, Kurt Vonnegut, who wrote Slaughterhouse-Five, in that group of people who are new novelists 
who really showed what World War II could be like and, and approached it in a way that was unusual. Uh-huh. In the na- in the Naked and the Dead, he sort of jumps around in the head of all of the platoon mates that he had and tells the story of, of their experiences in war. I have funny stories. I wanted to read that book in the worst way. Uh-huh. I was at the North Dartmouth Mall when they had a Walden Books in it. Do you remember Walden Books, Bill? I do. And I walked through Walden Books and I looked everywhere for a copy of The Naked and the Dead. by Norman Mailer. Couldn't find it, so I finally found a clerk and I said, I'm looking for a book. And she said, what book are you looking for, sir? And I said, I'm looking for Norman Mailer's The Naked and the Dead. And she goes, we don't have those kind of books here. <laughs> and I said, what? She says, we don't have those kind of books here. And I said, what are you talking about? She goes, we would never have a book called The Naked and the Dead by someone named Mormon Naylor. And I said, Norman Mailer. <laughs> it's an author. That's the author's name. And it's a World War II book. And she looked at me like I was insane. <laughs> and then I did not ever get my copy of The Naked and the Dead. And then you read it 30 years later and said, wait a minute. It was, I read, I know the story. All right. February the 1st of 1987, currently American pro wrestler, former UFC fighter, and mom, Ronda Rousey. Oh, she was also a bronze uh, Olympic judo medalist. Yeah. Where I first sort of ran across her as an athlete, watching her, like, I don't know the right phrase. I was going to say manhandle, but because it's women judo, that's not what it is. Right. Watching her, like, really land good judo throws in, geez, I want to say it was like the 94 Olympics or 90, 98? It was, I don't, it was I don't back think it was a bit. 94, dude. That was, she would only have been like seven years old. She was talented, Bill. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. You know, she did four classes at the YMCA and that, that shipped it. We don't have a good judo team in this country. Where do you yeah. think we get them from? And then she, she sort of made the crossover to mixed martial arts where it was a big deal that she started fighting MMA and was very good as she could get her hands on you. Yep. But she learned the hard way that she can't box. And I watched Holly Holm, like, take her head off using the old one, too. Yeah, it was, that was, like, a big deal because Ronda Rousey in the UFC and stuff did very well for herself. And then, yeah. yeah, she came across somebody that just had her number and Ronda Rousey got taken to school. Two people in a row. Yeah. And then she she split and she made she started making movies mm-hmm. and, uh, and transferred over to the world wrestling f- stuff. Yeah, she's been in the WWE for, you know, on and off for a few years now to mixed reactions. It's funny when she's on television, she's terrible. That girl, she's a better boxer than she is somebody that what they call cuts a promo. She's not good on the microphone like at all. She's barely believable. But for whatever reason, whenever she does like big ticket fights, like the pay-per-view fights for the WWE, they're always really, really good. Yeah, I think she can sell it if she's working with the right people. That's kind of the key. Yeah, I think that's a lot to do with it, too, that she's working with the right people. Because there's an old saying in wrestling that the best wrestlers could wrestle a mop and make it look like the mop is kicking their ass. Right. But Ronda Rousey, like I said, kind of a mixed reaction. Some people like her because of who I'm talking about the wrestler Ronda Rousey now. Uh, Some people like her just because of her namesake. Other people like her because they feel like she doesn't belong in the business. She hasn't paid enough dues to get the kind of Mm. marquee matches that she does. All right, moving on. February 2nd, 1942, guitar player Graham Nash, who is probably best known for his role in Crosby, Stills, and Nash. He's the Nash one. And he was also in the Hollies, which was a band that modeled itself on the Beatles right around the Rubber Soul era. Oh, I didn't realize he was in the Hollies. 
Yep. He was oh, okay. in the Hollies with uh, Stephen Stills. And that's how Stephen Stills ended up in Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Because huh. they were pals. I guess as far as like naming stuff, they peaked at the Hollies. Yeah. Unless there was somebody named well, Holly in the band. Uh, I don't know about Yeah, and, and Stephen Stills, who was in Neil Young's first band, Buffalo Springfield, yep. ended up bringing Neil Young into the band. He's like, you know what? We're not going to rename this thing. Just add Young to the end. Right, right. Not my wheelhouse. I never really listened to a lot of Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, or otherwise. <laughs> Although this year I did start a new thing. Instead of doing 365 days and 365 albums, I am running down the list of 1,001 albums that I'm supposed to listen to before I die. And I'm quite sure Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, and McGillicuddy will eventually show up. <laughs> yeah, you'll definitely get the Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young record. At least one of them on there, for sure. I'll let you know. Awesome. I'll keep you abreast. Graham Nash is like the one guy who, he doesn't get along with David Crosby anymore, but nobody does. <laughs> but I think he's the only one that still talks to Stephen Stills and Neil Young, and they don't all threaten each other with death, like David Crosby does. So, <laughs> uh, Drugs are a hell of a drug, Jeff. All right, moving on to February the 3rd, 1918. Allegedly a member of the... Rat Pack, Joey Bishop. For the life of uh, me, I can't think of a single thing that this guy... What does this guy do? I don't know. I don't think he was allegedly a member of the Rat He was. I yeah. just don't know why. He was like the... He must have been somebody's cousin. Yeah. Ah, we got to take Joey with us. Come on. All oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I got to watch him. <laughs> um, Get the back. Then don't yeah. say nothing. I mean, it, it doesn't really stand out like, you know, the Dean Martins and the... Sammy Davis Jr.'s and the Frank Sinatra's. What is it you do, babe? Yeah. But he, I guess he did something right because he ended up being a guest host on The Tonight Show like 175 times, maybe more. That's a lot. Maybe he was a, a presenter. What do you mean? That's a throwback to a previous episode we talked about like oh. um, Ryan Seacrest is like, that's a profession that doesn't seem to exist very often anymore. Yeah, Joey Bishop's job, pro- his job was, was to go, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Right, yeah, exactly. With a rat pack. And that's and that's it. And then, what do you do? I'm with them. <laughs> the flavor flavor of the rat pack, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's instead of wearing a big analog clock around his neck, he's got a calendar, Rolodex. <laughs> All right, moving on. February 4th, 1940. American horror film director and writer and failure to put in paperwork, George A. Romero. <laughs> And paperwork procrastinator. Who created the modern zombie milieu. He's the guy. And after producing and directing Night of the Living Dead, he failed to file the necessary paperwork so that he owned it. And it immediately went into the public domain. Yes. That's why you can buy 527,000 different versions of it. Almost all of them sourced from a UHF channel that was recorded on a Betamax. We were watching some really, really, really crappy horror movie called Thanks Killing. I've been meaning to go back and watch the sequel, Thanks Killing 3. There is no Thanks Killing 2. Uh, oh. For whatever reason. Uh, but they should have any- called it Pumpkin Die. That would have been a better name. <laughs> oh, my God. That's, that's really smart. At any rate, uh, during the movie, several times during the movie, people are watching television and they're always watching Night of the Living Dead because they don't have to pay the copyrights, the, the famous copyright flub of Night of the Living Dead. It's always been in the public domain. It's literally never mm. made money. I remember the first time I saw it, I saw it on Channel 11. Do you remember Channel 11? That was like the New Bedford cable TV cable access channel. And yes. Okay. Between 4 and 6 o'clock, they would show a public domain movie every day after school. Right. And that's the first place I watched Night of the Living Dead. Uh, was George there. A. Romero's zombie movies or 
of the dead movies. Uh, for starters, mm-hmm. fun fact, he never intended them to be quote-unquote zombies. That was a part of a movie review in the newspaper. Yes. Two, I absolutely love the Romero zom- uh, dead movies. Mm-hmm. Because as he do always, I. yeah, he always uses the zombies as a metaphor for something else. He tells one story by telling another. Yes. Uh, so you know, the original Night of the Living Dead was, you know, a, a piece of about and against racism. Yes. There's like class warfare da- in certain right. movies. Dawn of the Dead was about uh, consumerism. Day of the Dead was about militarism. Yeah. There's uh, uh what was the one with the tower? That was Land of the Dead. Yeah, that's was, about was that's stratified about, society. Yeah, that's a class warfare one. Yeah. Yep. And then Diary of the Dead was that was about like you know, YouTube. Uh, you, yeah, yeah, uh, social media, right? Yeah. That's that one's really good. That one, yeah, I like that one a lot. Yeah, for for a late era Romero film, that one's really good. Yeah, agreed. All right, and then wrapping up the week, birthdays, just a day after George A. Romero was born, February the 5th of 1940, Swiss surrealist artist H.R. Giger, probably best known for designing the album cover for Debbie Harry's first solo album, Cuckoo. <laughs> or for Penis Landscape, the poster that got Jello Biafra in all that trouble in 1984. So H.R. Giger, as we joke around, probably best known, is a Swiss surrealist artist who's very stylized. You know his stuff when you see it. He is probably best known for being the designer of the aliens and the sets of Alien, um, yes. the 1979 Ridley Scott movie, Alien. Yes. his The style of art that he is the sort of grandfather of is called biomechanical art. Mm-hmm. That's the phraseology that's used to describe it. And it generally shows the synergy between human and machine in a very organic style. So there's a lot of like human-shaped pieces and parts that are gray like you would see in a really old factory. Ah. And it's super-duper evocative of what you would think of as like heavy metal slash goth-type record covers. Yes. He did the cover for Brain Salad Surgery from Emerson Lake and Palmer, Cuckoo from Debbie Harry. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's a few others here and there. I think he did the Celtic Frost one, too. I'm sure he's done others as well and, yeah. and, and stuff for other films and things. But he's also, like, he's really renowned. Like, his visual art that's displayed in galleries is still super-duper popular. And they've got some at, like, the Museum of Modern Art and some other places, too. Yeah, you like can I check said, out. very stylized. You know his stuff when you see it. I can think of one person whose style and... Uh, musical givings would never ever be at home with hr giger in their artwork you know who that is right i do the worst song ever so jeff most of the time as this segment has progressed over the past you know two plus years now two and a half years Mm -hmm. a lot of times we bring up songs that we call the worst song ever and we actually either like the song or it's definitely people, you know, message me sometimes like, how, how come you put that as the worst song ever? And it's like, it's not the worst song ever. That's just the name of the segment. Right. Uh, this song is the worst song ever, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. I like to describe music like this as, as it's as subtle as a tub fart. <laughs> this song that we're talking about this week is from Jennifer Lopez with her hit song. 
Jenny from the block. Let's just get this out of the way. Oh my God, just like rip the bandaid off. This song, Jeff, this song, physically, you can hear it in my voice. This song physically makes me angry. I get <laughs> mad at this song. It's like J-Lo is insulting me. It's like, this is what I think yeah. of you. This is what I think of you, Bill. And I'm like, you know what, J-Lo? Fuck you. That's what I think of you. You know, I don't mind songs that have a little bit of bravado in them and a little bit of braggadocio and a little bit of like, you know, I fought the good fight and here I am after all this blah, blah to, to get somewhere. Yeah, that's called Kid but Rock. This but okay. song, But this song is so like, I've got big rocks on my fingers and... I've got a nice house and I've got a big thing and I've got all this cash and I've got all these contracts and I'm still the same as I was before. <laughs> no, you're the not. devil you are. No, because, yeah. because first of all, you never would have done this before. You wouldn't have flaunted your stuff like this. You wouldn't have been this obnoxious about it. And, and I actually found I couldn't for the life of me have pulled a lyric for this song out of my brain if you had if you had give, offered me money. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, right, up until today. It's something like because I, it, probably 30 years from now, I'll be sitting around going like, oh my God, Jenny from the block. I remember every word of that song. But um, There's only like eight words. It's just yeah. You just keep saying I, the same thing over and over and over and over again. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm no different than I was when I was young. No, that's not true. No. I found myself like getting irritated as I was listening to it and then even more irritated when I watched the official video until I watched Ben Affleck literally kiss her ass in the video. Yes. I cracked up laughing. I laughed so hard. I almost knocked over my seltzer. Yep. I was howling yep. at that. So so this song came out like 20 years ago. Now, at the time of this song, you know, J-Lo had started out as a backup dancer for the new kids on the block. Huh? How about that? Mm-hmm. And then she was famously a fly girl on Living Color. But then, you know, she pursued a music career and some... She did some movies and stuff like that. She did the movie Selena. Uh, you know, it's a critical acclaim. And that was uh, a true story about a, a, a singer, a Latin singer, poised to, you know, for superstardom, who ended up being murdered by the head of her fan club. Yes. And then, you know, that just catapulted J-Lo into the spotlight. Nobody could, like, stop talking about it. It's like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And from that point forward, it was a lot of disastrous stuff. Well, okay, so there was a period where she made a couple of really good movies. She made The Cell with Vincent D'Onofrio, yeah, which was a fantastic horror movie. I'm sure it is, but it didn't. It's, it didn't do as well as it could have. It's uh, it's kind of. Obs- I don't remember what it made it, for money. I'm a horror movie guy, dude, and that yep. movie is a little obscure, probably because I'm not going to go seek it out because it's got. Jennifer Lopez, <laughs> and then she made Jiggly. I think it's Gigli. Geely. Yeah. I don't know. Geely's, I always think of Geely's like a Chinese car company because it's a Chinese car company, <laughs> but it's spelled like Jiggly, but it's not supposed to. Uh, one of the multiple problems with the film yep. is the name. I know a podcast like that. <laughs> Which was like a vessel for it, like it became a vanity project because she was in a relationship with Ben Affleck. Yeah, they met and it was, They were all over the tabloids because of it. And yeah. Oh, that movie so tanked. The, that movie is like regarded as one terrible. of the worst movies ever. Yeah. 
Yeah, it tries to be like a romantic comedy. It tries to be a crime movie. It tries to be a. It's just. It's nothing. It's nothing good. It's everything bad about movies is yep. capped in that movie. And Jennifer Lopez is in it. I, I'm not going to say she's the common denominator because Ben Affleck can also be terrible depending on what movie he's in. But when you put the two of them together, it's like double, double bad, bad. Yep. Oh man, the the video for Jenny from the Block. Like the, the, lyrically, the song is supposed to be like, even though I'm a big superstar now, I'm still humble and I'm you know I still remember my roots. Oh, the devil's asshole! You still <laughs> you can still come up and talk to me. No, you can't. Yeah, you're about as humble as nothing. All the song does is brag, and all the video does is brag. Uh, I, 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 look, I don't. I mean, she's like, I still remember where I come from, and yeah, I remember where I came. I come from too. Yeah, it was it sucked. There's no mention. Of, like, where she comes from until, like, the very end of the song, she, the, somebody's like, psst, hey, psst, hey, you forgot to say it. And she's like, the Bronx! And then the, the song yeah. ends, yeah. Yeah, she doesn't go back there without multiple bodyguards. <laughs> the the video is incredibly irritating to watch. However, Ben Affleck literally kisses her ass in the video. It made me laugh, like, super hard. Yeah, you so mentioned that already. If, if you, just turn the, I know, just turn the, it's worth mentioning again. <laughs> Just turn the volume off and watch for that, and it'll be worthwhile. Uh, ben Affleck talks about that video, saying that it almost uh, ruined his career. Oh, Ben. Yeah, well. You are delusional, my friend. Uh, you think that video almost ruined your career? I've got notes. I've got notes for you, mm. sir. <laughs> I remember seeing videos, interviews with uh, J-Lo around this time, and I just remember one interview. Again, I'm getting like, I would get mad just watching it. Because she kept on saying, my talent, my talents, my talents, my talents. It's like, yeah. honey, you're okay. You're a very pretty girl. Apparently, you're a pretty good dancer. And you fill out a dress nicely. And it kind of comes to a screeching halt right there. The rest of it is all production. I don't have enough experience with your music to, to jump on board with that. Well, I've got very little. I've But I've been in a recording studio. I can tell you, listening to Jenny from the Block, that... She had very little to do with uh, the recording of that song. Oh, I'm sure. She, I'm sure she wasn't back there on the point. I don't know. I don't know who wrote it though. I didn't look that far. That's into hilarious. It, uh, funny you should mention that you don't know who wrote it because the the songwriting credits on it are like probably about a dozen people, which is yeah. doubly hilarious because the song is so sample heavy. There's at least three different songs that are sampled in it. One of them being Boogie Down Productions song. South Bronx. Right. And the other thing, too, is that constant loop in the song of the flutes there. Mm -hmm. It's like really grating. You know what it reminds me of? You remember that song? I think it was Rob Bass, It Takes Two. Yeah. And the, the, or the loop of the song has got the, who? Yeah. 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 It's like nobody said that might be a bad idea. I mean, that's really (laughs) annoying after a while. (laughs) I like that part. That hooks that song. That's the hook, man. Yeah, the hook is annoying. I can't remember any of the other <laughs> lyrics, but I can remember that part. Yeah. <laughs> I will say this. This song has given me a whole new appreciation for the quality of Bootylicious. Okay. Which, see, is a, I, which is a way better song, a way better song than this one. I came within inches, dude, of jumping in my car and driving up to New Hampshire and slapping you in the mouth because- When you said, I will say this, generally speaking, when you say, I will say this, you say something nice about the song in general. Right. And you didn't. You came through for me, Jeff. There is nothing to say about this song that's that's good. I had so many bad Uh. things to say about this song, and I haven't even gotten to them. We're at the end of the segment. All I know is that 
I'm pissed. This song pisses me off. Well, Bill from the block. Yeah. Uh, let's get us out of this. And All right. Get us out of this. All right. Let's, let's wrap up the show with the answer to my very popular and always uh, yes. well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Hmm. Uh, hey, Bill. So uh, all of us Generation X people had a video game system known as the Atari. Uh, the Atari yes. is the name of the video game company. And what mm-hmm. does Atari mean? There are two answers to this question, but I'm looking for – you'll understand whenever I tell you what I'm looking for. It's funny that you bring this up. I was just watching a series of videos about the the uh, history of Godzilla video games. Okay. Godzilla video games were developed by Pipework Software, which ultimately was purchased by Atari. Uh-huh. And then got spun off, and the company that got hired to make the Godzilla game on the PlayStation 4 had another company called Atari that made pachinko machines. In that documentary, they talked about where the phrase Atari came from, and it's a phrase that describes a particular strategic move in the game Go or Go Moku. Ding, ding, ding. We have ourselves a winner. So if it wasn't for me looking at Godzilla videos legitimately last week, I would not have been able to answer that All question. Right. So the word Atari literally translates to strike or hit. But there is a strategic game played in I think, in Japan. Yes. Uh, called Go, which is played uh, on a a grid with black and white stones. It's kind of a almost like a ground acquisition game. It's a little hard to describe just using words, but strategic wise, it's very similar to chess, where you have to think out your moves three, four, five, six moves in advance. Yes. And whenever you're taking over a section of the board with uh, you know your surrounding stones. You in Japan would yell Atari, which is very similar to saying check or checkmate when you're playing chess. It's the same kind of right. principle as that. So I'm yeah. pretty sure that if I started playing this game like in college, you know, with Cindy or something, yeah. that I probably would have been pummeled with rocks. Yeah. Knowing the way that I tend to play <laughs> board games. I've played Go multiple uh, contusions. I've- I tried pl- le- learning how to play Go as an app on my phone, and mm-hmm. I could not be a third grader at that game. I'm just not good at that sort of a thing. No. All right, but that is going to wrap it up for this week. We will see you back here in approximately seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. A special shout-out to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. You know, you can find us or message us over at Facebook or Instagram. Just look for Twibbly. That's T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. And don't forget to subscribe. You may just find out your favorite song is the worst song ever.